If you would please turn to the book of Isaiah, chapter 3. not actually spend much time on Isaiah chapter 3 today. It's a continuation of a discussion of judgment. We discussed that last time when it talked about the, the day of the Lord and bringing down the pride of man, man's frailty as we picked on Eliot and so forth. J- chapter 3 continues this, right? For in, If you look in verse 1, for behold, the Lord God of hosts, or the Lord God of armies, is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread and all support of water. The mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of fifty and the men of rank, the counselor and the skilled magician and the expert in charms. And I will make boys their princes and infants rule over them. This chapter is broken up into two pieces. You've got an indictment against the men as the first part of the chapter, and that's the beginning of that. Then you've got a transition in the middle of it, and you've got the indictment against women. If we look, for example, in, um, let's see, verse 16. Yahweh said, Because of the daughters of Zion are haughty, and and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet, Therefore, the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion. Yeah, chapter 3. Um, and, the, and Yahweh will lay bare their secret parts. In that day, the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets and the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes, the amulets, the signet rings and nose rings, the festal robes, the mantlets, the cloaks and the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments and the turbans and the veils. Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. Instead of a belt, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, baldness. Instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth and branding. Instead of beauty, your men shall fall by the sword and your mighty men in battle, and her gates shall lament and mourn empty. She shall sit on the ground, and seven women shall take hold of one man in that day, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. A very serious situation here. Uh, in, the, in the 90s, there was a uh, Christian rock song called Bald Women. Should remember it. It was, a, it was a humorous take on this chapter, but this chapter is not humorous. This is about uh, mass destruction. This is, uh, this is not women voluntarily, we're going to give up our jewelry, right? And voluntarily, we're going to shave our heads. This is conquest, as we discussed when we talked about chapter, chapter 2. This is conquest. This is enslavement. This is destruction, mass destruction. And in the middle of that, at the, it, you've got this horrific destruction of what it's going to do to the men and then to the women. But that's the backdrop of our discussion today. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 4. There's often um, really inconvenient chapter and verse breaks. One of them is here. Uh, that, verse, that first verse, virtually everyone would today would just go... Okay, this was a poor choice. This should be in the previous chapter because you really got a switch in subject in verse 2. This is really where the chapter should have, have gone. And remember, the chapter breaks 
except for maybe the Psalms, are not inspired in any way. But starting in 4.2, In that day, the branch of Yahweh shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from, the, from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning, then Yahweh will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flame by night, for over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat, and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. I want you to take a minute. In verse 2, what is the branch? What is the branch of verse 2? Ultimately, here are two valid answers, and we're going to focus on one for now. The other is also true. What is? What are our answers? What is? What is the branch? Okay, valid answer. Oh, she was joking. You know the Sunday school answer. Yeah. Actually, true here, but <laughs> also not the only valid answer. What's the other one? Yes. Yeah, and you can see this in the parallelism, right? Remember, th- this is all Hebrew poetry, all right? And Hebrew poetry likes to parallel. You're, so you're going to have a one statement, and then you're going to have another one that's essentially going to repeat it. In that day, all right, the branch of Yahweh shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. It's, in this case, would be A, B, B, A. Right? A, the branch of the Lord. B, beautiful and glorious. The fruit of the land shall be pride and honor. B, for the survivors of Israel. A. So you've got that kind of structure here. So yeah, contextually, what's going on here? And I think the image is this. Um, you cut down, you, you come through with a big mower and you cut down a tree. Or in this case, axes, I guess. Would, they don't have mowers in the ancient world. What happens? Is the tree dead? Often, Yes. All the time? No. All right? Because sometimes, even when you cut down a plant, you'll see a little branch pop up. Right? Those of us who've worked in yards and such, we've seen this before. I thought I killed that tree. There's a, there's a, a branch growing out of this. There's a twig. It's, it's not yet dead because it still has a root system. Right? I think that's the idea here. All right? That God, in chapter 2 and chapter 3, says, I'm going to come cut you all down. All right? But... All right, but chapter four. In that day, this uh, this little branch of Yahweh shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. All right, survivors branch, and he who is left in Zion, once again the remnant, and remains in Jerusalem, will be called holy. 
everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. And this picks up the, the two pieces of the previous chapter. All right, going in reverse order. You've got the filth of the daughters of Zion. That's the second half of chapter 3. And though it doesn't explicitly say the men, right? Cleansed of the bloodstains of Jerusalem. That's what it's talking about. The, 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 the murderous, violent men that God was going to wipe out. So you've actually got here, God's going to cleanse this. How is he going to cleanse it? A spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning. Then you've got a hearkening back to the Exodus. Right? When God... You know, pulled his people out of Egypt and says, Then Yahweh will create, uh, create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and for a shelter from the storm and the rain. You've got, in other words, the idea here that when God is dealing with his people, sometimes he needs to bring a cleansing judgment. All right? As we've discussed many times, this was built into the Old Covenant. Go check Deuteronomy. He made an agreement with Israel all right, and said, if you rebel against me, I will send somebody and they will be my judgment against you. And that is exactly what is going to happen here. All right? And so this is built into their relationship. Now, we'll also see this in our own lives. As we've also discussed many times, God disciplines those He loves. All right? It is an act that He lovingly does for us. Whenever we sin sometimes, he will, they won't repent. It is time for discipline to bring this about. In this particular case, you've got exactly this. They will not repent. I will discipline them. I will send Assyria. I will send Babylon. Both of them would have affected Jerusalem and Judah in the next couple hundred years. I will send them, and there will only be left after that a remnant. Think of it as starting over. All right? Many are there, but a remnant remains. Let's look at a different story. Let's look at 1 Kings 19. First Kings 19. First Kings 18, you've got the, the story of Elijah facing off against the prophets of Baal and Asherah. Elijah wins. Alright? Elijah wins because the true God is with him. Demons can't perform what God can do. And so therefore the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Asher are all taken and do we remember what happens? Slaughtered. Right? Slaughtered by Elijah. Now was it Elijah doing all the slaughtering or he was in charge. Maybe he was doing it himself. That has been done by the prophets of God. Alright? We might remember Samuel doing the same. Or maybe Elijah in charge was leading the people and it, had, and it was done regardless. 
you've got a massacre of the false prophets, all right? A judgment against the people. Now, chapter 19, you've got the consequences of this against Elijah. Ahab, who was the king at the time, Ahab told Jezebel, and by the way, uh, before this, you've got yeah, Ahab had been looking for Elijah, and Elijah had been kind of avoiding him. But then Elijah comes, and he's like, all right, it's time. I'm going to talk to Ahab. He goes to Ahab, and he says, hey, Ahab, bring all your prophets up to the mountain. We're going to have a face-off. Essentially, that's, that's 17 and 18. Now, Ahab tells Jezebel, his wife, all right, all that Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Now, Jezebel was a... Um, was a believer in Baal, all right? She was the one, all right, who brought in a lot of these false prophets. And so uh, Ahab is like, this is what happened. I mean, it doesn't seem overly mad. Uh, Jezebel, though, is, all right? Uh, Verse 2, Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also. All right? She's making a, she's making, she's swearing, right, by, by the demons. So may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Of course, referring to the slain prophets of Baal. Then he was afraid, and he rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. So he does not respond to this necessarily in faith. He responds to this in fear. Which, I mean, if you've got uh, Jezebel coming after you, it is maybe not right, but it is reasonable. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Yahweh. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Also not true. This is self-deception on his part. I'm no, no he, really, he really was. He's a, quite the amazing prophet. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake, baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of Yahweh came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. And so he is in great pity for himself. But God says, and God's not done with him. God comes and he sustains him. He sustains him. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. Behold, the word of Yahweh came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for Yahweh, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before Yahweh. Now, Elijah should know this. What he should know what he's saying is not even true. He absolutely should know that because you've actually got a couple chapters back. You've got Elijah meet with uh, a guy named Obadiah. All right, and now Obadiah. This is back at the very beginning of chapter eighteen. Obadiah was a righteous man, and he took a hundred prophets of God, righteous prophets, and he split them into two. Smart, because if the bad find them. All right, he'll only wipe out half. Splits him into two pieces and is supporting him. All right, and he discusses this 
with Elijah. So Elijah knows in his mind, or should know in his mind, that this is not true. So what's going on? It's just... It's, it's depression. It's fear. He was on a high. Now he's on a low. All right? Verse 11. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before Yahweh. And behold, Yahweh passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before Yahweh. But Yahweh was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But Yahweh was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But Yahweh was not in the fire. After the fire, the sound of a low whisper. You've got the first three things, which are like signs of judgment. All right? But God's not in judgment with Elijah. And he's there in a low whisper, speaking. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for Yahweh, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and, and he killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And Yahweh said to him, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. So he's not actually going back to the land of Jezebel, he's going to go back to Damascus. Verse 16, And Jehu the son of Nimshi you shall anoint to be king over Israel. Hmm, not Ahab. And Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abel-Mahula you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from, escapes from the sword of Hazael, Damascus, shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, the new, newly anointed king of Israel, shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. You've got a remnant again. All right? Obadiah, because of his action, had preserved 100. But you've got here, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. This is like looking at the same idea. All right, but in different context. Now, Elijah here is a good 130, 140 years before the actual destruction of the northern kingdom. So this is this is a bit. He's a bit before. All right, what Isaiah is talking about. Elijah is in a fit of depression, if we want to call it that. He's in a spiritually very low place. All right. And he should know better that there are other prophets around. Theologically, he should know that God would preserve a remnant, but he forgets it. And he should intellectually know it because a guy named Obadiah had already talked to him about this, all right, um, and mentioned this. And now God comes to him and says, 7,000 preserved who have not yet bowed the knee to Baal. So for Obadiah, excuse me, for Elijah, this is an encouragement. You think you're alone. You're not actually alone. All right? In the book of Isaiah, it's an encouragement, but of a very different sort. I am going to come and destroy Judah, but not all of them. Most of them. Not all of them. A remnant will be there, 
All right? And God will ultimately bless those people. It's super easy for us to forget because we come here, right? At least most of us. We come here every Sunday and have for years. It is very easy for us to forget that right now, or in the next two or three hours, there are millions of people right now in the U.S. meeting to pray and listen to the scriptures. We seem alone, all right? It's the small group, all right? We are not, we are not a little cult sitting in Parker alone, all right? We ought to remember that we are a part of millions, all right? And if we look around us and we look at the media and all that kind of stuff, we don't see much of that. All right? But we have to remember it. We need to hear the message often that Isaiah, or excuse me, that Elijah got, which is you think you're alone, you think everyone's out to kill you, you think everyone's out to destroy you, all right? But there's actually a remnant out there that are actually, that are on your side. All right? But we also need to hear the other message, all right? That if God does come in judgment, he will also leave a remnant. It's no big deal for God to take out a nation, all right? I hope we don't get destroyed. I like America. It's no big deal for God to take out a nation. God has lasted beyond thousands of nations, destroyed them, built them up. This is what he does. Right? In his providence, he does this very thing. He puts kings in place. Right? We actually have an example of that in Elijah's case. Elijah, go anoint this guy and go anoint this guy and then go, anoint, go anoint this guy. Political, political, spiritual. And they're gonna, they are going to kill my enemies. All right? An instance of God picking political leaders and spiritual leaders to accomplish his deeds, what he wanted. All right? Elijah, his time was, a, was about over. All right? But that didn't mean the faith was over because he anointed Elisha, right? who would take the cloak of Elijah right? and be the prophet, the great prophet in his place. And he, in fact, was. Right? So we need to remember that God tears down and builds up. And these processes are way longer sometimes than our lifetimes. All right? U.S. has been around much longer than we've been alive, all right? Though it's not all that old in terms of world history. It's still, it's been around quite a bit longer than, than, we, than we've been around. And it may be around longer than we're around, and I hope so, actually. I hope it is. But it's going to die. God will destroy it, all right? God will destroy this nation, tear it down, just like he has tearn, torn down and built up nations before. The question is, whether you look at it from Isaiah's perspective or you look at it from Elijah's perspective, all right? There is a separate group of people, all right, if you join them, all right, that God maintains, right? The people of God, the prophets of Elijah or in Isaiah, the branch, maintained in their faithfulness. The world's kind of crazy right now. All right? What's holding it together? I really think the only thing that's holding the, the U.S. in some sort of sanity is the church. I mean, it is crazy out there. I've got a friend 
who uh, has children in one of the very large public schools in the area. There is so much nonsense. I hear all sorts of stories. So much nonsense going on. All right. So much gender confusion going on. All right. We have an answer for that. And the answer is there is corruption here. It's a problem of sin. All right. That's very hard for people who don't have our worldview to give a really good answer for. How do we deal with this? If we think, oh, everyone's talking about this, everyone believes this, let's all have pronouns and just capitulate. Remember, there is a remnant. All right? There is a remnant. There are right now millions of people in the U.S. who are not willing to capitulate. You're not, even remotely, alone. Let's turn to the Gospel of Matthew, if we will. I actually want us to talk about the remnant, at least one notion of the remnant here in Matthew. Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. The word remnant does not appear in this section. But the idea is clearly here. Imagine, if you would, um, this is a... This would be a good message for Elijah. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. This is verse 12. Verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide... And the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it, enter by it, are many. But the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. Those who find it are few. Who's the remnant here? The few, right? The latter. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it, all right, are few. In Elijah's time, those who found it were few. 7,000. Plus Elijah. Right. Those who in Israel would escape the judgment of Isaiah chapter 2 and 3 would also be few. They would be from a great tree, just a little twig, just a little branch, all right, that everything could grow back from. Now turn to Matthew chapter 16. Starting in verse 21. Matthew 16, yes. So, uh, in this particular case, our context here is um, Jesus is preparing his disciples for his death. Verse 21, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. 
This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, All right, here's the narrow way. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. As we've discussed before, right, Jesus is talking here about both spiritual and physical realities. When he says here, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death. So in other words, some of those who I'm talking to, the disciples, all right, who might be in 80, 30, 30, I don't know, about 30 years old or 40 years old. Maybe some in their 20s. No, not, not old people. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Alright? What could this possibly be? I'm telling you, it's the same thing as Isaiah. Not the same event, but the same kind of thing. Alright? When you've got this discussion, when you see the Son of Man coming with the angels in the glory of His Father, alright? When you talk about, in the Old Testament, Yahweh of hosts, what army are we talking about there? Because host there is army. It's not talking about people armies, right? It, though God uses those as his instruments, right? Yahweh of hosts is not talking about people armies. Yahweh of hosts is talking about angelic armies, right? And so when you've got here, when you see the Son of Man coming with his angels in the glory of the Father, then he will repay to each according to what he has done. Truly, truly, you're going to see it. Some of you will live to see this very thing, all right? In other words, he's prophesying, all right, a remnant. There's going to be a judgment that will come against this city, and it will destroy it. And there will be a remnant. It's the same message as before, now being, of course, preached by the greatest of all prophets. Same idea, all right? And who are the ones, all right, that this is not going to come against? Well, those who enter by the narrow way, if you take Matthew 7... All right? Or those who take up the cross of Jesus and go, this is my way of life, of surrendering my desires and my life and following him. That's that group. All right? He's talking to his disciples. They will see it. They won't be under it. Right? We know they left. All right, we discussed before. the church left Jerusalem and did not get wiped out with it. All right, that's that's a part of the Gospels. They will survive. They will actually be the remnant throughout all of that. Now, this sounds like a, a really depressing message, but it's actually not. And and when I think about these things, I'm actually not doom and gloom uh, about the U.S. The U.S. can come and go. I hope it stays for a while. The U.S. can come and go, though. Uh, turn to Matthew chapter 13. I am actually very much not doom and gloom about this. Maybe I've not gotten enough persecution yet. Yes, yes, Chip. Uh, and 
that he will be rewarded, reward each person according to what he has done. Yes. Uh, could that be a possibly a justification for adoption of works? <clears throat> Uh, some people could use it, but there's actually plenty of passages in the New Testament and the Old that say, you know what, Christians will be known by their works. A Christian without works is not a Christian. A tree, if we use this analogy, shall be known by its what? Its fruit. For sure. Yes. Matthew 13. I think that that, just one second, I think that um, is related to his discussion before with Peter. Like, the way is narrow, and if you find it, mm-hmm. and the, the, the natural following question is, well, how will we know who's part of the remnant? And he said, well, you'll know. You can tell by the fruit. Mm-hmm. If it's good fruit, then you'll know they're, they're part of the remnant. Yeah. Exactly right. 100%. I don't think you should be negative. It is entirely possible that there will be major catastrophe and our lives will be upended in the next few years and it will be really, really terrible. But in general, I actually think we should not be worried. Matthew chapter 13. If you would. This parable. All right. Matthew chapter 13, verse 31. What's the kingdom of heaven like? For those of us with uh, post-millennial leanings, this is our, uh, one of our favorite verses right here. Verse 31. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, and when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree. So that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. And he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like the like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. The history of Israel, um, starting all the way back from Deuteronomy through the judges, you see this a lot, through the kingdom, is a story of growth, catastrophe. Growth, judgment. Growth, judgment. You've got creating a remnant multiple times here. I think you've got the same thing in the Gospels. I think Jesus talks about this, as exactly what we're looking at. It's going to be narrow. I don't think that's the end state, though. All right. If that's the end state, these parables don't make a bit of sense. All right. What's the image of the leaven? All right. The image of the leaven is you've got dough, yay much dough. You put a little leaven in. All right. What's it going to do? It's not just going to stay in that one place. You put the leaven. It's going to take over the whole thing. What about the mustard seed? All right. You plant it. It's a, mustard seed is a really good image of a of a, of a remnant because it's extremely small. All right. What's going to happen? Well, it's going to grow and grow and grow. And suddenly it's going to be a large tree. And then you have birds, large enough where birds can come and nest in it. Multiple birds. All right. It's not an image of cutting. It's not an image of winnowing. It's an image of growth. All right. I'm, po- I'm, I'm positive. America may fall. All right. Long term, the church, I think the promise is good. All right. 
the promise is, I think, most certainly good. Turn, if you would, to Revelation chapter 3, and this is where we'll end today. And this message is more or less important to different people at different times in different churches. I think it's very applicable for today. Revelation chapter 3. This is, uh, in the, this is the second chapters of the letters, where John writes letters to uh, churches in Asia Minor. And what we're going to read the letter to the church of Laodicea, starting in verse 14, Revelation 3, 14. And so God, or Christ specifically, writes a letter to the angel of the church in Laodicea. The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. That's, a, that's Jesus. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is Christ talking through the whole thing. All right? The one, verse, back in verse 21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. All right? Christ, at his ascension, raised to sit at the right hand of God. He says to everyone who conquers, what do we mean by conquer? Well, go back up, right? Not be lukewarm, all right? To follow God in strength and faith. To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. You've got lots of discussion in these letters about persecution, all right? That's coming on the churches. But to the one who conquers, all right, you will reign with Christ. And then see the end, all right? It's a letter to a church, but it's also a letter to individuals, all right? Verse 22, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You should think of the remnant. All right, the remnant that is alive today, that is growing. The church is, is, is succeeding in the world. I do believe that. Even though eh, you look around the U.S., may not look that way. God's kingdom is growing. The remnant, which is growing, all right, 
you should think of it like a, resist, a resistance movement. All right? The world and its worshippers of Baal or its worshippers of money and whatnot. Right? They're very active, all right? and they are wanting to destroy the remnant. All right? They're wanting to restri- destroy the church, and they destroy it in so many ways. All right? They can at least try, anyway. We know that they can't, ultimately. But they at least try, through many ways. But, here's a message. All right? He who has an ear to hear, all right, let him hear. All right? Many will find the broad path, which will lead to destruction. But he who has an ear to hear, let him find the narrow path. Let him take up the cross of Jesus and follow him and be a part of that remnant. The doctrine of the remnant, and we never did get to how Jesus is the branch. We'll get there. The doctrine and and New Testament theology puts this together, but that's a discussion for another time. The doctrine of the remnant, all right, is something that we can hold on to because God will always have a remnant. Did he not promise to Abraham, which is what all of this is based on, all right? Did he not promise to Abraham, I will make sure you have many descendants, all right? And God is not like a man. He does not lie. He does not lie. For him to let the remnant die... He would be a liar. But he's all-powerful. He can bring about whatever he wants, and he will always preserve his remnant. So, he who has an ear to hear, hear what the Spirit of God has to say to the churches. Okay? Let's pray. God help us. May the world see us from what we are by our fruit. May they see us walking the narrow way. Give us opportunities to pick up the cross of Christ and to show that. Help us in all these things. Give us faith. Give us repentance where we are lax. Discipline us if we need us, if we need it. Help us in all these things. Give us strength together. Help remind us to give thanks for our brothers and sisters around the world and to pray for them. Bless us today. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.